You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. That is the word of God. So we've been camping out in the Old Testament for a while. We've been looking at the books of Jonah and Nahum. And so now that we are done with that, we're going to go back to the New Testament for a while. uh, And we're going to hang out in the book of Titus. Now, hopefully... Uh, You don't think that I just play a game of darts whenever I decide uh, which part of Scripture we're going to study next. Um, I promise I'm not just closing my eyes and just opening up my Bibles and pointing to something. Um, Rather, as most of you know, our church on Sunday nights uh, have been, we've been going through a book called Rediscover Church, uh, which is a very helpful book at just getting back to the basics and looking at Uh, What is the local church and why is it so important? Uh, And as we've talked about earlier, uh, we as a church have partnered with the Resound Network in order to have some outside support to see how we can better reach our community with the gospel of Christ. So in addition to those things, I thought it would be fitting for our church to work through the book of Titus on Sunday mornings. Because in this letter, Paul lays out a blueprint for building God's church. I mean, that's really the the main idea of the book of Titus. So that's an idea uh, that we are going to be exploring in depth over the next several weeks as we work through these three chapters. And we are exploring the Bible's blueprint for building God's church. And as I've been studying this letter for the last few weeks, it's clear that Paul breaks down his instructions to Titus into three major categories. In chapter 1, we see the necessity of having healthy leaders. Uh, Without godly, Christ-centered leaders in a church, uh, the church is, is really like a ship without a rudder. You know, it may still move if the wind is blowing hard enough, but it's not going to have any sense of direction. It's not going to be able to maintain a straight and steady course. But then in Titus chapter 2, it talks about healthy members. Because it doesn't matter if you have healthy leaders, if you have no one for them to lead. And going back to the ship analogy, you know, if the leaders are the rudder, then the members of the church are the ship itself. I mean, so a congregation full of backbiting, bickering members uh, with the spiritual maturity of a baby, 
That's like finding that your ship's hull is just riddled with holes. And if those holes, you know, if they aren't too big, well, maybe the ship can stay afloat. Uh, But the pastor is going to be spending all of his time bailing out water rather than trying to direct the ship to where it needs to go. And if those holes are sizable, well, then it doesn't matter how experienced the captain might be or how expensive the engines are or how great the rudder is. A ship with too many holes is a ship that is destined to sink. So Paul says you need healthy leaders, healthy members, uh, then in chapter three, he's going to talk about uh, that. He's going to say that that all of those things are necessary so that we might have a healthy witness to a watching world. Because if you hop on a beautiful-looking cruise liner, only to discover that everything on the inside is just falling apart. Well, you're not going to want to stay on that ship for very long. I mean, pretty quickly, you are going to abandon it for a safer ship. So as Paul reminds us that the world is watching. So we need healthy leaders and healthy members so that we can have a healthy witness to a watching world. Because if our church is fundamentally broken or flawed then we can't, we can't expect anybody else to want to be a part of what we are doing. So for the next few weeks, we're going to focus in on chapter 1, and uh, we're going to see what Paul has to say to Titus about healthy leadership in a church, which means we need to begin by defining leadership. What does it mean to lead? Is it... Just a job for someone like me, who you've hired to be your pastor, uh, or at some level, is this a responsibility that we all collectively share? Well, let me give you what I would argue to be a pretty common definition of leadership. Um, I think that this is what many, if not most people, think about when they hear this word. Uh, that, that a leader is really just an individual who holds a uh, particular office or has some kind of position that gives them the authority to make decisions. You know, leadership means being the one who has uh, the final decisions, who, who gets to run the show. Uh, they're kind of like the head honcho. And if you're going to define leadership narrowly like that, well, then no, not everyone is going to be a leader. But um, I want to offer you kind of a a broader alternative definition for leadership, Um, not because the first one is wrong, uh, but because I think that there are multiple ways to think about what it means to lead. So let me suggest that another way to define leadership is to say that it's simply taking a shared vision and turning it into reality. Leadership is taking a shared vision and turning it into a reality. Leaders are anyone and everyone who are forward-thinking people, who have their eyes fixated on the future, and who take the initiative to bring that future one step closer to the present. 
And if that's our definition for leadership, then this is a responsibility that we all share. But for our church to be a thriving, healthy church, I mean, we need to be chock full of those kinds of leaders. Because God's vision to build his kingdom is way too big of a vision for the pastor alone to make happen. I mean, it's going to take all of us. And that's a reality that Paul understood well, as we're going to see in these opening four verses of this letter. Uh, Next week, we're going to take a deeper look at this church planter that Paul is writing to, uh, this guy named Titus. And we're going to look at the context of his ministry on an island called Crete. But before we get to any of that, uh, we first need to take a look at Paul, the man who wrote this letter. Because even in his introduction, we see how Paul shows himself how he can be a model for ministry and for leadership. Not that Paul is perfect, uh, far from it. You know, Paul often des- described himself as a chief, uh, the chief of sinners. But as far as Paul modeled his life after Christ, so too can we model our lives after his. And so in these first few verses, Paul models for you uh, four commitments that should characterize each and every godly leader. And if we understand the reality that we should all be leading in the efforts of making God's vision for this church a reality, then we realize that these are four commitments that should characterize everyone in this congregation. So let's go back to verse 1 to see this first commitment. Paul begins by writing that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is kind of a strange way to start this letter, if you think about it, especially a man that that he's very familiar with already. I mean, Titus was a fellow pastor and missionary companion uh, who had worked with Paul for a number of years. In fact, Paul was probably the one who had initially shared the gospel with Titus in the first place. And if I was going to send a uh, a letter or a text message to somebody in this congregation, I probably wouldn't say something as long or as formal as Paul. You probably wouldn't see me texting you saying, hey, this is Richard, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Ewing and graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'd I'd probably just say, hey, this is Richard. How's it going? So so Paul is writing a very formal introduction. I mean, especially to, to someone that he is so close to and so familiar to. So why is that? Well, the answer is that Paul knows that he's not just writing to Titus. I mean, yes, Titus is primarily who he had in mind when he wrote this letter, but he knew other pastors and even other churches were going to read this letter. And he knew that this letter, which was being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it was likely to be preserved and passed down through the generations so that future congregations and future Christians like us could one day read this. 
So, so he's much more formal than he needs to be so that even those who are unfamiliar with him can still have an understanding of who he was. He was Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the simple, simplest way that you could summarize what Paul's life was about. And this shows you uh, the first commitment of a godly leader. Um, at the risk of stating the obvious, godly leadership begins with a commitment to God. Paul used two common titles uh, to describe himself here. He says he's a servant of God. Uh, that's just a, a common Old Testament title. Uh, it was most often used to describe the prophet Moses. And it can mean servant, or it can also even mean slave. So, so Paul is placing himself behind the likes of, of those like Moses, someone who is completely and wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh. Just like Moses, Paul is saying that he has shackled himself to the Lord, and he has willingly submitted himself to be his slave. And he also describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You may have heard me say this before, but the term apostle, um, that's a very common New Testament term. Uh, and it's a Greek word that literally means to be a sent out one. It was used very specifically uh, for those who had personally interacted with Jesus and who had been commissioned by him. And even though Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles that followed Jesus during his public ministry, Paul still had seen Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus. And he had been commissioned and sent out by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to those in the world who were not of Jewish blood. And so... This should go without saying, but the first steps to being an effective leader who will labor to turn God's vision into reality, the first step is that you should be a sold-out servant of God who has been sent out by God. Because if you're not wholeheartedly committed to the Lord— then even though you may still lead and influence others, you're going to be leading them in the wrong direction. Uh, there, there's a pastor named H.B. Charles Jr., uh, and I think he summarized it best. He said, you must always preach as a satisfied customer, not as a paid advertiser. Uh, you must always preach as a satisfied customer, not as a paid advertiser. So you're not a used car salesman who's just in it for the money. Uh, you're not trying to sell Jesus to others because there's going to be some kind of personal benefit to you. Rather, you yourself are a satisfied customer because your life has been changed by God. You want to be sent out by him so that others' lives may be changed as well. I and mean, I think that's why a pastor cannot be the only evangelist in the church. It, that just doesn't work. A pastor can't be the only evangelist because in some ways 
he's actually going to be less effective than others in the congregation. Because, of course, I am going to preach the gospel. Of course, I'm going to tell you about it. I mean, that's what I get paid to do. So so sometimes the most effective witness to the gospel uh, isn't going to come from the pastor, but rather from the faithful members of the church. When they share their testimony and, and, and you say, you know, I used to never want to have anything to do with God. And I'd never thought that I'd I'd find myself as that kind of individual who would ever step foot inside a church. But now that Christ has come into my life, man, I don't know what I would do without him. All I want to do now is is to serve him and to to go tell others about him as well. I mean, that's going to be the most effective witness. And it starts by being wholeheartedly, firmly committed to God. So that's number one. You must be committed to God. That's first and foremost. Uh, But there's a second commitment that you can see in verse two. Uh, Verse two, Paul reminds Titus uh, the purpose of this letter and of Paul's own life, really, is directly related to the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I almost had a pause for a moment. The first time that I read, Paul even had to write that God never lies. I mean, the reason for that double take, I mean, it, it just seems so obvious. Why would you even need to write that? Of course, God never lies. I mean, that's part of what makes him God. So, so why would Paul even need to waste the ink to spell that out? Well, as I said, uh, we're going to talk more about Titus and the island of Crete and those who uh, Titus was ministering to next week. Uh, But what's important to know today is that the people that Titus was sent to share the gospel to, uh, they worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods, uh, particularly Zeus. And and we associate God as being a God of truth because we've, we've been steeped in millennia of Christian tradition. But the Greeks did not associate their gods with truth or even goodness. I mean, Zeus was seen as a perpetual liar. He was often unfaithful to his wife, Hera, and he was constantly uh, seducing other women and then trying to cover it up so his wife wouldn't find out. So when the people of Crete thought of God, you know, they thought of supernatural beings like that who may be more powerful than mortals, but they were just as morally depraved uh, as any earthly men or women. And so Paul, he wants to make it very clear, very early on in this letter to anyone reading these words, that the God he worships is different than any other God. His God is not like Zeus. His God is a God who is faithful and who is the very embodiment of truth, not trickery. 
His God made a promise even before time began, and he isn't going to waver on that promise, which shows you the second commitment of a godly leader. If you are committed to God, you must also be committed to the mission of God, which is the hope of eternal life found only in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And through submitting yourself to his lordship, even before God created Adam and Eve, he knew that we would all fall into sin. So even before creation, he was already preparing to send his son to the cross and to sacrifice him to to pay the penalty for our sin. That's the mission of God. It always has been, and it always will be. And it will never change because God himself doesn't change. And we can trust that this promise is true because he is truth. Because he, because God, does not and in fact cannot lie. So you must be committed to God. You must be committed to the mission of God Uh, But now look to verse 3. Here's where we see a third commitment. Paul spells out the mission of God, which centers around the message of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, He says that uh, he has been entrusted to preach this message uh, by the very command of God our Savior. That's how this precious and invaluable message of the gospel is going to be used to strengthen and expand the Lord's kingdom through God's word and through the simple preaching of this word. And this is where you see the third commitment of a godly leader. You must be committed to the methods of God. Not just to God and not just to his mission, but you also must be committed to his methods. And those methods by which he is sovereignly chosen to make his message known, they are extraordinarily ordinary. These methods are very, very simple, very ordinary. The Lord will advance his kingdom through his word and through the preaching of that word. That's it. Everything that you need to know, not just to survive, but to thrive in life, everything that you need is found right in between the covers of your Bible. You simply need to open it up and just let the word of God do the work of God. Just open up your Bibles and let the word of God do the work of God. So he's going to advance his kingdom through his word. Uh, But Paul also says he's going to advance his kingdom through the preaching of that word. Preaching, like we hear every Sunday uh, when we gather together as a church. uh, But also the kind of preaching uh, that you do every time you faithfully proclaim and share the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors. Here's the thing. We don't need fog machines to bring people into our doors and and get their attention. Uh, We don't need disco lights 
We don't need louder worship music than churches around us. We simply need to open up our Bibles and preach what it says. It is literally as simple as that. Because there is radical power to be found in these words. Soul-saving, life-sustaining, heart-transforming power. Because if you are a follower of Christ, then his very spirit lives inside of you. And so every time you approach his word, you have his spirit who is going to use that word to transform your life in incredible ways. So stick with the seemingly ordinary methods by which God has chosen to grow his kingdom. Because through those ordinary means you are going to see some extraordinary results. So godly leaders must be committed to God, to the mission of God, to the methods of God. Uh, But there's still one commitment left to see. Verse 4, Paul says that this letter has been written to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus and Paul were not blood-related, but because of their common faith in Jesus Christ, they were still family. Paul had known Titus for years. I mean, they had traveled together throughout the Roman Empire. They had faced numerous uh, challenges and hardships together. And even though Paul wasn't with Titus on the island of Crete in person, and he still wanted to encourage him through this letter because to Paul, Titus was like a son. And that's the fourth and final commitment of godly leadership. You must be committed to the men and women of God. You must be committed to the men and women of God. You must see them as family. And there's a couple of aspects to that. Uh, Leading means both working with people and it means working for people. First, it means working with people. Uh, Paul was one of the most influential leaders of the early church. I mean, in his life, uh, in his life, he, he just left. Uh, This lasting, uh, almost legendary uh, legacy. I mean, we're still talking about this man two millennia later, like after he lived. But when you think about Paul and his life and all he did, what's the one thing that we never see Paul do? What's the one thing that he didn't do? He did a lot of things. What's the one thing that he didn't do? He never did ministry alone. That's the one thing you never see. When you you read his letters, you look at all of those letters he wrote, he was always talking about his companions, uh, his co-laborers. There were always others that were sending their greetings with him. And so as Christians seeking to make God's vision for this church a reality, you must recognize that if Paul didn't labor alone, then neither should we. We must have co-laborers helping us uh, reach our goals of of seeing a harvest uh, of people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
So, so we must work with others, but we also must remember that we work for others. Um, let me go back to the beginning of this passage for just a moment. Towards the end of verse 1, Paul says that everything he does is ultimately for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now, this idea of the elect, um, it's not always an easy concept to kind of wrap your mind around. Uh, You hear that word and you're not always sure what it it means. Uh, But the Bible makes it very clear that in God's mercy and his grace, uh, he has elected or you could use the words appointed or chosen certain individuals for salvation. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, you couldn't choose God. So in his mercy and grace, he chose you. So when the Bible speaks of the elect, it's just another way of speaking about the people of God. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And God has known through his perfect wisdom, even from eternity past, who those elect are. The ones who will spend eternity with him in the life to come. But what's so interesting about this idea of the elect is that even before an individual has submitted their life to Christ, they're still a part of the elect even if they don't know it yet. Because God doesn't experience time like you and I. So before time even began, he already knew who he had chosen and appointed, uh, those who, who he was going to adopt into his family. And this should be a great comfort to you and I. This is why I, I bring this up. This should be a great comfort to us, particularly when you are sharing your faith. Because even when you are nervous, even when you don't feel like your words are particularly refined or very elegant, even then you can still have confidence in sharing your faith because someone's salvation, it doesn't rest on how persuasive your presentation of the gospel is. If they are of the elect, If they have been set aside by God to be saved by God, then nothing you can say or do could ever keep the Lord from drawing them into his throne. So that should give you confidence. So that like Paul, you you can be laboring always for the sake of the elect. They are all around you in this community Even if you don't know who they are, uh, even if they don't know who they are yet, God has still chosen in his grace to restore their relationship to him. And he wants you to be the one to tell them how that restoration can be made possible through the blood of Christ. So at the end of the day, everyone is a leader at some level. I I hope that we have seen that. 
Uh, You may not be a pastor. You may not hold any kind of office or have any particular position. But everyone in this room has those around them whom they influence, be they family or friends or colleagues or even other members of this church. So, So the question isn't so much, are you leading and influencing others? But rather, the question is, where are you leading them? Are are you leading them in a direction that runs them further and further away from the vision the Lord has for his people? Or are you leading them to take the vision that the Bible has laid out for us? Are, Are you seeking to help them bring that vision closer and closer to reality? My prayer is that we would be a people and a congregation known for the latter. Let me pray. Father, uh, just, we are so thankful. We are thankful for you and your word uh, and for just uh, helpful instructional letters like we see in the book of Titus. Um, And even as we wrap up this first sermon in this series Um, I just pray that there would just be a number of takeaways that that we would have from this text and that they would just stick with us throughout the week. May we all seek to lead the charge when it comes to seeing your will be done and your vision become a reality. That vision, Father, of untold multitudes from every tribe, every tongue, from all people who are gathered to worship you around your throne. I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.